So Money episode 804, Saul Orwell, entrepreneur and co-founder of Examine.com. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. My favorite kinds of books are biographies. And the questions I always ask myself is, would I read my own biographies? Am I writing an interesting chapter in my life? And that's pretty much what guides me. I'm not interested in money. I'm not interested in fame. I don't have Instagram. My Facebook isn't about uh, my significant other. It isn't about my life. It's not pictures of my thighs looking like hot dogs with a beach backdrop. It's more about my opinions and my thoughts. And so everything I do is with an eye towards, will something fun or ridiculous happen out of it? When was the last time you did something fun or ridiculous? Maybe it's listening to this podcast. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Our guest today is Saul Orwell. You just heard him. He's an entrepreneur, world traveler, and philanthropist. He was born Ahmed Farouk, but decided to name himself after George Orwell. So, you know, I had a few questions about that. Saul is an immigrant. He moved with his family from Saudi Arabia to the West as a teen. He retired in his mid-20s. Yeah. After achieving huge success with his website, examine.com, maybe you've read it. It's a destination for learning about nutrition. Saul and I discuss the roots of his unique philosophies on everything from life to relationships, business, and his own personal identity. Also, the early lessons that have led him to financial success. Here we go. Here's Saul Orwell. Saul Orwell, welcome to So Money, my friend. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Where am I catching you right now? I know that you spent a lot of time traveling during the year. So where are you calling in from? I'm at home base in Toronto. My event was like 10, 12 days ago. So I'm recuperating. But uh, at Toronto, especially in the summertime, we have such a short summer that I try to spend as much time as I can in Toronto during summer. Well, what was the event? Where? What? Tell us more about it. I almost set that up. Um, I do these charity food offs. Uh, We've been doing these little food offs between our friends for three, four, five years now. Uh, I started doing a charity version of it 18 months ago, and we always only sell 100 tickets. So the first one, 18 months ago, we raised 950 bucks for charity. Uh, The most recent one, which, like I said, was two Sundays ago, uh, we raised over $100,000 for uh, charity. So it's basically an excuse for people to come together, eat a crap ton of cookies. We had over 200 pounds of cookies at the event, um, meet some interesting people and uh, just do something atypical that doesn't normally happen in people's everyday days. It's interesting this being the initiative from somebody who built a business and a seven-figure business around fitness. <laughs> so I, don't, how, I mean, do you eat the cookies or what's going on? Oh, yeah, yeah I love so. Uh, I mean, the way I even got into this, so I've been doing this online business thing now for 19 years, right? And uh, I was kind of like quasi-retired and I had gained a lot of weight. I was living in Argentina and then in Manhattan. And um, as I lost weight, I realized, well, wait a minute, the supplement company is ripping us off. That's kind of how I got into the nutrition fitness space. But for me, and I've lost maybe like 60 pounds now and kept it off, which is usually the, the, the real headache. But for me, it's like people go too dogmatic. They're like, oh, I'm not doing sugar or I'm only going 
going keto, I'm only going paleo uh, diet or whatnot, is too dogmatic, it's too restrictive. Um, in the real world, that's not how it works. So for me, it's, yeah, you know, we celebrate the excess. We have 38 different uh, kinds of toxic cookies, and you can bet any money that I tried all 38. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, the underlying base is still vegetables and the important foundational stuff, almost like anything in life, like business, right? You still have to do the important stuff. And then the toxic cookies are just uh, an expression of, you know, let's have fun. Let's not forget that life is absurd and to kind of entertain that um, absurdity right there. What are you up to these days outside of your philanthropy and your traveling? I know that you've, you've been in the online business space for decades and if, depending on which article you read about Saul Orwell, you retired in your mid twenties or your thirties or, uh, you're, you're currently <laughs> retired. So tell us a little bit about your, the makeup of your year currently and how you, how you prioritize your time. Sure. Just some backdrop. Um, so the reason I've started all these businesses um, and they've been in dis- uh, disparate uh, industries is out of self-interest. So basically, I immigrated to the West when I was 14. I got into online games. That was kind of like my refuge uh, because I was so overwhelmed by culture shock. Um, and so my first business in 99, we were involved in virtual currency um, in games like EverQuest and World of Warcraft. And then right around when Google Maps came out in like 2003, four, we got into local search in Toronto. Um, and after both of them did well enough, like I, by no means was I wealthy or rich, but for me, entrepreneurship was always about independence. Let me do what I want when I want. Uh, to that end, like I legally changed my full name because I didn't get to choose it. And I always thought that was crazy. So that's me being independent. So I was basically a full bum in like my mid late twenties. So in the mid two thousands, um, and then I created examine.com, which is a nutrition company for the past couple of years though, it's been more about, uh, there's all this garbage out there. Like, let's be honest, be it in any space and, and not to make it political, but I think we can see in politics too, it's just absolute asinine stuff out there. So, um, I spend a lot of my time kind of trying to make a positive impact where I can. So a lot of that is like one-on-one. I have a bunch of people that uh, I think have a lot of potential that I'm, let's say, helping with uh, entrepreneurship or kind of how I approach it. Uh, the charity stuff takes up a lot of time. Uh, I do one or two entrepreneur dinner uh, dinners here in Toronto. Um, there's a bunch of amazing entrepreneurs. Shopify is based here. But unlike places like New York or the Valley or Boston or Austin, people don't come together as much as they do um, in the States. So I spend a lot of time just bringing humans together. And the reason I do this, so I don't do any services, I don't do any consulting, I have no desire to write a book, I have no monetization out of, let's say, having an audience. But for me, what happens is the shenanigans I get involved with afterwards are far, far, far more interesting. So, you know, stuff like rally racing, I've been invited to an aircraft carrier by the DOD, stuff like that. So my my favorite kinds of books are biographies. And the questions I always ask myself is, would I read my own biographies? Am I writing an interesting chapter in my life? And that's pretty much what guides me. I'm not interested in money. I'm not interested in fame. And obviously when I say money to a certain level, you need to have a baseline. I'm not interested in fame. Like I don't have Instagram. My Facebook isn't about uh, my significant other. It isn't about my life. It's not pictures of my thighs looking like hot dogs with a beach backdrop. It's more about my opinions and my thoughts. And so everything I do is with an eye towards, will something fun or ridiculous happen out of it? And so all the people I have in my life, like not to sound like a jerk, but it's not hard to find people with money. I'm much more interested in people with money, let's say, who are doing fun things. Right. Be it random event. Like I was just talking to a buddy of mine. And he's like, yeah, man, I went heli fishing. I was like, I did not even know that it existed <laughs> as a 
I, as a, you know, activity. That's when you have too much money, I think. I, yeah, okay. There, there's definitely things where people have told me, and I'm like, man, okay, now you're just burning your money. Now you're just bored. <laughs> yeah. Um, but just to play devil's advocate, I mean, you said, yeah. like, I don't care about money, but the lifestyle that you lead, people would say is very privileged. You have this sure. ability to take on experiences, pick up and travel wherever you want to go, choose things because you want to necessarily have a really cool experience as opposed to an ROI. Um, and when you first launched your many businesses, initially money must have been important to you because that is what has unlocked your ability to have this freedom. So there is an appreciation that you have for money. 100,000%. So I had a little uh, line right there about like, you obviously need a baseline of money. Uh, money's super important. As an immigrant, I am more than well aware of the advantageous position I'm in. Uh, I just posted on Facebook a few days ago about how the myth of self-made man, like it's this environment that affords you the ability to have a success. If I was still living in Pakistan or Saudi Arabia, there's no way in hell I would have even remotely approached the level of success I have today. I mean, just to give you a sense of it, Pakistan blocked YouTube until 2016, which is crazy. That's not even 24 months ago. Like eight years so, later. <laughs> exactly, right? Like <laughs> More wow. than that, like 10 years later. It's, oh man, like, yeah, wait, YouTube was bought by uh, Google for billions like 10 years ago, right? So uh, absolutely to the level of baseline. What I'm saying is once you reach X dollars, and X dollars is a different number for everybody else, the famous study that everyone cites as $80,000 is like the baseline for happiness. Afterwards, money is perfunctory. Uh, so for me, it's like, yeah, you know what? I could build more businesses. I could build bigger businesses. I could build a social media following. I could sell courses. I could do consulting, books, all that kind of stuff. That optionality is there for me if I wish to take it. And I'm not denigrating anyone who does decide to go that route. But for me, I'm far more interested in like being able to look back and be like, yo, that was a crazy year. This month was madness. I never thought this kind of stuff could happen. That's far more interesting for me. But absolutely, like let's not play people, try to downplay success as if it's just a product of their hard work. 100% garbage. The environment, the opportunity is so huge in establishing your success. And that's something I do spend a lot of time and energy and effort trying to talk about, trying to elucidate to some people. It's like, I don't need your guilt because people always think it's if you, if you talk about privilege, if you wish, or advantages, that you're asking for their guilt or you're asking for them to slouch their shoulders. No, but let's be a little bit more self-aware that for certain groups of people, it is much more difficult. And I find satisfaction in trying to help uh, these kind of people, which is kind of actually connects to uh, the charity stuff that we were talking about earlier. I really am interested in people's names and the root of our names. And I myself have had uh, my own personal dealings with being born Farnoosh and the humiliation that ensued in school. You were born Ahmed Farouk, right? Yeah. <laughs> so now you're Saul, short for Solomon Orwell, named yourself after George Orwell. Do you think that your name has helped your success? Yes and no. And so what I mean by that is, um, one of the things that I love about Toronto is, you know, you talk about cities like New York, let's say, or London, that they're 
uh, diverse and whatnot, but not to sound elitist about those other places, but there's still a level of sequestering of different uh, groups together. Toronto, obviously we have it to a level, but Toronto is far more integrated than any place I've ever been to ever in my life. And I've been to a fair number of places. Obviously I lived in New York too. So um, the name change was more about, I didn't feel like I owned the name Ahmed Farouk. So I used to be pretty devout Muslim. Uh, Ahmed Ahmed pronounced like, you know, uh, traditionally is a very Muslim name. But as someone who lost his religion, I was like, this does not reflect me anymore. Um, I can also even talk about the Freakonomics episode or part section of the book where they talk about the power of names. And I never felt powerful or I never felt um, uh, ownership of the name Ahmed Farouk. So Saul Orwell, and I legally did just change it to S-O-L, not even though it comes from Solomon, just S-O-L. Um, there's ownership in my name. And part of what I really like about Orwell is it's, it's multiple tiers. So beyond his authorship and his fantastic writing, uh, George Orwell was not his real name. It was his pen name. Also, George Orwell, real name Eric Blair, was actually born in the Indian subcontinent. So there's a nice level of like different layers, almost onion-like about the power of Orwell, um, which is why I've chosen it. Uh, I've never, ever felt that Ahmed Farouk has necessarily pushed me back. There's a lot of racist idiots uh, online, and they've definitely been emboldened over the last couple of years, and I've had some a whack, I think is the right way to say, uh, racist dribble come my way, uh, which I want to know, by the way, my favorite one ever uh, was, why don't you get on your magic carpet and ride away? Oh. And I read that and I was like, dude, I wish I had a magic carpet. Like that would yeah. be the thing in the world. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you for thinking so highly of me that I have <laughs> these magical powers. Yeah, that's not it. So like I'd be Aladdin, I'd be, oh, man, that would be amazing. I would never have to worry about heights or anything like that again. Anyway, little, or even flights. I'd be so comfortable on my cozy ass carpet anywho and i'm and i'm sure you faced enough of it i don't think the name really matters i think people will latch onto the name maybe to attack you but once they see your skin color or your ideals or what you stand for they'll attack you anyway so uh, yeah. the name is more for me than uh the external world wow well take keep us at, at childhood for a little bit because i i always ask guests this question and the, here it is so when you're growing up you're obviously there are a lot of influences what was an experience around money that you had or witnessed that to this day as an adult um, has stuck with you? You know, our sponsor for this podcast is Chase Slate, and they've done this extensive study around money and families and parenting. And they found that over half of parents have had a conversation about money with their kids. So anything like that with you that kind of has either helped you or that you tried to combat as an adult? Yeah, I'm totally going to throw my father under the bus now. So my father <laughs> was very good at what he did. Uh, I did not get along with the man. I still do not get along with the man. So disclaimer, I'm not just like giving random high praise. Uh, he did very well financially, but he was one of the most miserly people I've ever come across in my life. Um, and to that end, money was something you just hoarded, 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 hoarded. And I understand from his perspective, like when he was born, there was no Pakistan. There was no, well, I mean, I guess it was India. Uh, and he was involved when the so basically some hit, quick little history lesson. When the English left, they did what's called partition. And they were basically like, oh, you Muslims, you go into Pakistan. And all oh, you Hindus, you go into India. And oh, on the eastern side of uh, India are some more Muslims. We'll call that East Pakistan, which eventually became Bangladesh. So I can understand from his perspective about the value of money and saving and whatnot. But the man made more than enough money that the amount he saved was ludicrous. So for me, money has been like 
does it serve my means and let me spend it. So I'm willing to spend money on things that make my life easier. But through him, I've also, uh, let's say, got the ability to not spend money on stuff that's frivolous, which is a very important distinction that people don't always uh, agree with me on. But, uh, for example, I'm in a two-bedroom house. So I bought an extra power adapter for my MacBook so I don't have to go upstairs or downstairs to get it. It sounds ridiculous and you go like, you spent 150 bucks for that. But at the same time, I maybe used it upstairs or downstairs, I don't know, four, five, six, seven, eight hundred times. So it became worthwhile for me. On the flip side, if you're trying to convince me to spend 200 bucks to on a T-shirt or on a, on a shirt, you're going to have a really hard struggle selling me on it. So I think I got that from my parents where uh, I'm still, let's say, careful about my money. I still save a lot of money, but I definitely save money to make my life easier, especially seeing after my dad would inconvenience inconvenience himself so greatly just to save a dollar. And I'm like, man, my time and my mental health are not worth that, uh, that headache. Yeah. So what's the next chapter in your biography? Oh man, I have no idea. Um, I was actually talking to, so Mark Manson, who wrote that book, uh, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, um, he wrote a really good article last year about how people, especially in the entrepreneur space, are obsessed with like improving all the time. Like Everything must better. I must have the world's most efficient and optimal morning routine and the most efficient sleep routine and the most efficient work routine. Uh, I am not of that mindset. I am just throwing things together, seeing how that ad hocness comes together, and then going from there. So I don't have anything specific. I know that I'm going to do another charity food off next year. 99% will be a cookie off. That's as far as I've gotten. Um, in terms of business, I've been wanting to get in the pet space for a while. So I bought out pet dot, I bought the domain pet.org, I don't know, maybe almost two years ago now. But I haven't felt the full itch. And until I feel that full itch, I'm not willing to put my effort and energy into it. Otherwise, it's more of a chore than anything else. But other than that, honestly, there's no um, specifics. No what agenda. I yeah, no agenda. What I do know for myself, though, is more than focusing on wants, I focus on not wants. So, for example, I don't go to events at all anymore. Um, I'll go to a random city every few months, uh, like when we met in um, New York in January. Uh, in fact, the reason I was in New York in January was because a friend of mine had tickets to has courtside tickets to the Washington Wizards, uh, and the Raptors were playing them in the early February. And he was like, "Dude, just come down to DC and we'll go have fun." I'm like, Hell's yeah! And I had a great time. So, sorry, getting back on track. I'm more on like things I don't do, things I have no desire to do. So I've no desire to write a book. I've no desire to get into affiliate marketing. I've no desire to travel for events. So everything I do is more a consequence of these are things I don't want to do. What do I want to do um, other than chasing it around? So I've kind of placed constraints on myself instead of trying to be like, oh, I'm going to do this and impact a gajillion people and all that kind of stuff. So here's a challenging question. If your bank account went to zero, Mm -hmm. what would you do? Uh, so this is actually something I talk a lot with my friends. Uh, optionality. So some people, optionality gets a little bit defined wrong. Optionality is when your options open up due to uh, a certain amount of investment uh, that you've done. And investment isn't always money, right? Investment is time, it's effort, it's knowledge, it's experience, it's relationships. So I feel very confident uh, the reason I never really stress out running a business, no matter how much it's money it's making or not making, is worst, worst, worst case scenario, I have enough skills, I have enough uh, knowledge, and I have enough relationships and connections 
that I can find a job if I need to. Um, I have other like assets too, let's say like domain names like pet.org, seo.com, all that kind of stuff that can also liquidate in case it needs to be done. But I've always kept the eye of how can I be as a, how can I be a useful person in case shit hits the fan. And by useful, I don't even mean just like business. For example, I used to do a lot of wilderness camping. So if shit hits the fan in that way, and I'm not trying to sound like a doomsday or like an apocalyptical, whatever the word is, uh, but it's just building a, a wide variety of skills so that you are always useful uh, no matter what happens. So get more specific. Like what would be the ideal job or way that you would want to be useful if you had to, okay, let's say, forget, you know, selling pets.org or whatever, but like actually going out there and rebuilding your wealth. So, okay. So there's two ways of looking at it. If I, if my bank account was zero, I would likely get a part-time job. Now what's that part-time job? So part of it for me is that I, one of the things I struggle with, especially whenever I don't really go on podcasts much, but when I do, it's like, you know, people always ask you, what's your superpower? I don't really have a superpower. I mean, I'm good at bringing humans together. I've been doing SEO for 15 years. I've obviously been managing dozens of people for a very, very long time. Um, I can do web dev if I need to do. I'm heavy into UX, UI. So my and obviously I can be a COO if shit needs to be done. So my perspective is I have a bunch of skills and if I need to find a job to fulfill it, I can do that. With that said, going a little bit back and saying, you know, I do a side job, I'd still go back into building a business. At the end of the day, people would, People kind of overcomplicate what a business is. All a business is doing is solving someone's problem. That's it. That's the only core competency of a pro, uh, of a business. Every single business I built was solving my own problem, and it just so happened there was enough people that also had the same problem as me. So if this something like this ever came up, my only job would be find out what's a problem that's really bugging me, that's bugging enough people, and just build a business around that. So that would be kind of my approach. I'm not big on like the burning all the ships and bridges, and this is the only option I have now. I'm a little bit more... Uh, let's say pragmatic and long term, and I realize that businesses can fail, so I wouldn't throw all my eggs into that one basket. Tell me a little bit more about the things that uh, we need to watch out for because there are a lot of charlatans out there, right? Selling us products, courses, advice, coaching. How do you identify the quality brands and companies and entrepreneurs to, and then those that are junk, are just junk? Oh man, I, I, so one of the, the things I'm obsessed with is heuristics, right? So heuristics is basically a set of rules we apply to. Wait, what is the word? Slow down a little. Humoristics? Heuristics. Heuristics, okay. Yeah. So uh, in the most simplest way, heuristics is basically um, a recurring process to like understand things better and better. And why I use that is over time I've been exposed to a lot of people. Um, my last cookie up before the one that was just – uh, you know, 10 days ago, was in New York in November. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, Mark Manson, he showed up. Uh, Seth Godin showed up. Um, and in fact, like if you're listening to this, I had nothing to do with Seth, Seth showing up. I was actually connected to his wife. And his wife is a badass gluten-free baker in New York. And she competed yeah. and she dragged him along. Um, but what I was saying was people saw this and all these people started reaching out to me, right? Everyone's like trying to use me to get to Seth or to Mark or suddenly befriend me. Like even, um, so I'm, I'm totally sound like I'm name dropping, but I'm really making a, a sense of this. Uh, like a few weeks ago, uh, Mark commented on some of my, well, something I posted 
still on Facebook. And this one guy who I hadn't talked to in a year messaged me. And he's like, hey, man, next time you hang out with Mark, invite me. I'd love to join you guys. And I was like, who the hell are you when you haven't talked to me in forever trying to suddenly befriend me to get to this one guy without any purpose? So going back to how do you figure it out? Um, one of the simplest things I've found personally as a heuristic is, one, do they even have any actual experience? Uh, all these people are trying to teach you how to run a business. And if you ask any entrepreneur, it's both liberating and miserable. Managing humans is the worst thing in the world. <laughs> Obviously, it's worse than that in the world, but you get what I'm saying. It is yeah. not fun. Your personality is not other people's personalities. And trying to understand other people's personalities when it's so difficult to who you are and trying to manage them from that position is not fun. So the biggest, biggest, biggest thing for me is experience and knowledge in that domain. Um, and this is really important when people usually come back to me like, oh, what about coaches? They may not have the experience. They may not have had the experience of playing, but they've had the experience of being part of the system. They've had, like, you don't just become a head coach in any sport, right? You become an assistant coach or if something like in football, you become a quarterback coach or a throwing coach. You're very specific. And as you learn more and more, you go up and up and up the chain. So number one thing is knowledge. Uh, number two thing for me is how people position themselves. Um, there are some people who seem to never learn. They'll talk about their amazing relationship, and then a year later, they'll be like, oh, I'm in the worst relationship. That, it was the worst relationship ever. And then three months, they're like, oh, I'm in an amazing relationship. And then 12 months later, they'll be like, ah, oh, that was the worst relationship ever. And you're just looking there, sticking your hand out, being like, did you not learn from anything? So I'm very big on people who are hyperbolic about things. If they're always talking about how this is the best, and this is the perfect, and this is amazing, and that's the greatest ever, without any sense of balance of being like, oh, man, this sucks, or oh, that's no good, or anything like that. Those people I'm always very, very, very uh, suspicious of. And the third of it, to be honest, it, it kind of ties into it. It's just kind of how they carry themselves. Um, and someone's been on Forbes.com, and they're trumpeting that they've been on in Forbes, which is not really the entire same thing. Uh, I'm a little bit hesitant to uh, want to do anything with them. So um, it's, it's usually just about the way they carry themselves. Um, you can kind of get a sense of it if they're a little bit too slick, a little bit too perfect. Uh, those are the people I usually tend to shy away from. Here's another red flag. Ready? People who call themselves lifestyle entrepreneurs. Yeah. <laughs> what does that even mean? Like when you can't even come up with a name for what you do and how you make an impact. Like, I mean, if we talk about people's biographies, the moment someone else is tagging themselves as hashtag influential, you're like, man, you can maybe quote <laughs> somebody else and that other person is saying, this person is the most influential. I get it. If you're saying, hey, Forbes says I'm one of the most amazing people, fine. I can appreciate that. But when you're self-labeling uh, yourself as expert, genius, and also you always have to be careful of any like hot industries, right? When your cab drivers ask you about cryptocurrency, you know you're in a bubble. And if someone else is parading themselves as a crypto expert and they've never really talked about it until six months ago, you kind of need to raise your eyebrow and be like, mm -hmm. I don't know, man. This seems a little bit very, very opportunistically convenient. Have you always had a good BS, BS factor? Uh, I think part of the immigrant thing has always been very, very cynical. Uh, um, this is one thing. Uh, there, there's advantages and disadvantages, I think. Yeah, just being an immigrant, you're like, man, this sounds way too convenient, way too good to be true. Uh, I have no desire to be part of this. I, I think the other part of it is also um, 
the magic pill thing again as an immigrant you're like man there's no magic pills and the moment people sell you this ultimate solution for me i've always been like nah i'm good it, it just sounds too too convenient and too perfect so give us some parting advice for the entrepreneur or the aspiring entrepreneur who wants to who wants to be successful and make an impact and make money and do well. And they're at the beginning stages. And I know that's not as a very specific question, but you know, because you have built a number of businesses and you can, you work with a lot of entrepreneurs, like what's one bit of advice. It could be like, don't do this or here's what a lot of people think that they have to do and they don't just something given your background. I'd love to hear. Uh, for sure. I'm actually going to cheat and go uh, twosies on this. So first of all, I'm going to go back to what I had originally said. A business solves a problem. If you're not solving a problem, you're wasting everyone's time. That's the gist of it. Now, you could argue about something like Louis Vuitton and whatnot, but let's be real about the world. Let's focus a little bit on the survivorship bias. Most fail. The random exception, if anything, proves the rule. So let's leave those alone and remember what a business does. Secondly, uh, and if there's one thing that people screw up on is you need to focus and you need to go for the ask. And so when I say focus, like people are so wasting so much time on social media about their lives, about these forums, about these uh, message, uh, sorry, Facebook groups that are telling you to do this and you do that. You can't focus. You're so distracted. You have a million ideas that are being thrown your way. You know, someone's like, oh, I'll go on YouTube. Someone's like, oh, I'll buy Facebook ads. Someone else says, hey man, Google AdWords to go. Someone else like, oh, you got to do in-person events. Just focus on one Thing. You're solving a problem and you're focusing on that one distribution channel. And at the end of the day, man, you got to ask for the sale. Like it blows my mind how some people are like, oh, I'm not salesy or oh, I'm not marketing. And my, my viewpoint on that, in, uh, sorry, on that is you're basically disrespecting yourself if you're not asking for the sale. You're basically saying my shit is not good enough for me to go out on a limb even call it a limb and ask for your money for this product or service or solution I am offering you. So solve a problem, focus on what you're doing. Don't be distracted by all the other irrelevant garbage, especially social media. My God, like it blows my mind how much time people waste on it when every single analysis by pretty much anybody I know, with a few exceptions like the restaurant industry, they'd be like, man, social media does not drive sales. Great for engagement, which is fine when you're built up, but doesn't drive sales. Uh, sorry, I totally went on long diatribe there. Uh, and then eventually you got to ask. You got to ask for the sale. You got to ask for someone else's money. Otherwise, they're just going to keep using you or not to not think about opening up the wallet unless you specifically go for that ask. Um, yeah. And so if social media is not the way to get your sales in the can, how else are you doing it? I mean, I guess email ads somewhere, but you have to get out there. You can't just be in your box. For sure. So social media can be great as a distribution vehicle. But what I'm, when I say as focus is people spend so much time and effort into building up a social media audience, but it still doesn't actually convert. You need to take them from social media into email, into video, into something much more intimate and specific. A friend of mine, um, uh, Spencer Nadolsky, he has a huge, uh, what's it called? Instagram following. And he did a sale and I think he got like one sale out of it. When we're talking about huge, wow. it's relative, but he has almost a hundred thousand followers and he's getting a couple thousand likes per post. So it's not like he's bought his followers. Oh, he gets up to like five, 10,000, uh, likes per image. But what I'm saying is the conversion vehicle is different because social media is passive, uh, personal consumption. 
you're sharing memes, you're looking at funny dog pictures, you're not thinking of a business mindset. So you need to go where people have the mindset of this is transactional, this is time to buy. And that could be Google ads, that could be Facebook ads, Facebook ads are a little bit more complicated than that. It could be YouTube ads, it could even be something like LinkedIn. But people are spending their time on this personal stuff when that's not driving sales. Now eventually when you become big enough, yes, social media is a great amplifier. But when you're starting off and you don't have the money and no one knows who you are, you're wasting your time trying to get from 10 to 20 Instagram followers when 10 to 20 email subscribers will give you a 100x ROI compared to that Instagram right there. Right, right. Okay, last but not least, these are my so many fill in the blanks. Just finish the sentence. (laughs) All right. If I won the lottery tomorrow, the first thing I would do is? Uh, Start a foundation. Around? Uh, like a charitable foundation. The found, so, uh, sorry, I'm totally making this long version. Uh, one of the things I learned out of my cookie office, instead of donating to one charity, we ended up donating to four because as any normal human being, I have multiple interests and there's not one thing that defines me. So starting the foundation would then let me help distribute money to various things that matter to me personally. Right on. All right. The one thing I spend on that makes my life easier or better is? Travel? Food. Sorry, food. Yeah. Food. Yeah. Healthy food. Uh, Delicious food, uh, high-end food, high-end meals. I love it. It makes me happy. Done. Easy. All right. When I splurge, like you, you know, really go for the, the, the big, the big ticket stuff. The one thing I love to buy is. Ooh, this one's tough. Uh, custom suits. Oh, (laughs) do you wear a lot of suits? Uh, not that much, but there's a few things better feeling than like getting a tailored suit and wearing it out. You're like, man, this is built just for me. It makes me look good. I feel good. I feel like a million bucks. Name's Saul Orwell. Firm firm handshake. (laughs) But not too firm. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, We already know that you love to donate. I was going to ask when you donate, you give to blank, but it sounds like you have multiple um, organizations that you really love. Yep. How about this? The one thing I wish I had learned about money growing up is... One thing I wish to use it to make your life... uh, if, If you can solve a problem by throwing money at it, throw the money at it. Yeah. And last but not least, I'm Saul Orwell. I'm so money because... I'm living the immigrant dream. Living the immigrant dream. I like it. Oh, so good to connect with you, Saul. You got all, you packed in a lot of punch in the 30, 35 minutes we had with you. Really appreciate your time. I know you're a man on the go. And hope to see you when you're back in New York or if I ever make it to Toronto. You uh, definitely need to come in Toronto. Definitely come in the summertime. It is miserable in the wintertime. Uh, but hopefully, actually, I might be even, well, people listening to this. But uh, I'll be in New York sooner than later and we'll definitely run into each other. All right. Take care, Saul. My pleasure. Thank you. To learn more about Saul, head over to sjo.com. His other site is examine.com. If you missed any of this, just go to somoneypodcast.com. You can download the transcript, the audio. You can subscribe to the podcast, learn about sponsorships. My goodness, what else? Oh, click on Ask Farnoosh and leave me your question for our Friday episodes of Ask Farnoosh. And even there, let me know if you'd like to co-host. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I hope your day is so money.